My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. On March 20th, 2003, the most powerful military in the world announced that it would go into Iraq to get rid of a bad guy. And this would be the beginning of a new, new world order. The Bush administration made it abundantly clear that this was the idea. Of course, the invasion fell to shambles, and the war in Iraq became the biggest stain on Bush's legacy, at least until he left. He became the 21st century Vietnam, pulling human lives, neighboring countries, and trillions upon trillions of dollars into a black hole changing the trajectory of not only both countries, but also the Middle East and the entire world forever. On tonight's episode of A Conversation Before the World Ends, and the first of a series, we'll be venturing to Iraq, and not just talk about the war on Iraq, but the events that took place in Iraq in the last century, from the post-Ottoman to the rise of Saddam to the First and Second Gulf War, and try to understand how and why did this war take place, and could it have been avoided, and what was its impact. Hey guys, and welcome to a new episode of A Conversation Before the World Ends. I'm your host, <laughs> Kareem. And I'm Eamon. And welcome to today's episode. So, Aim. It's not a laughing matter what we're talking about today. It's not. Yeah, but I don't know why, why you... La- why no, because you looked, you're saying I'm weird. I don't know why you're laughing. You think it's funny? I don't think anything's funny. Nothing's funny. I know we kind of said that we would be tackling conspiracy theories. And I know you were... You got tinfoil hats ready. But since it was 20 years, March 20th, I think, was the 20-year anniversary of when America declared war in Iraq, part two, I decided we it would be something interesting to look at. But then the more I read into it and the more I went back in time to see like the starting point, I found myself starting in the 1900s. 1900s? Yeah. So I thought it would be nice, maybe it could be a first time we do a part, like divide into a three-part episode where we tackle Iraq. And uh, it's going to be continuous parts? Yeah. We're going to do Iraq and something else and come back to No, it. no, we'll do continuous. So for the next three episodes, hopefully it will be three episodes. The way the notes are looking, three episodes. The next three episodes will be tackling Iraq post-Ottoman Empire, pre-Saddam Hussein. And for our American fans, it's Iraq. Iraq. Yeah, we'll be tackling Iraq. Iraq. Iraq for the Arabs. Iraq. Um, for the in-between is Iraq. Iraq. <laughs> Part two, we will tackle the rise of Saddam, Iran-Iraq war, and the first Gulf War. Directly oh, no. impacted your birth. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that too, how I was born as a result of the first Gulf War. Had Kareem not been born, there would be no Gulf War. <laughs> or maybe it's the other way around. Had there been no Gulf War, there would be no Kareem. It was the Gulf War craze. <laughs> Everyone was reproducing. It's the predestination of what came first. Yeah. Third part and final part, we'll be tackling the, the second Gulf War with Bush, Saddam, the capture of Saddam, the fall of Iraq. 
and what we could learn about this war, the second reason. And is there a through line from when the Ottoman fell to the second Gulf War and what came beyond and how that shaped the Middle East? Because I'm pretty sure there's a through line between that and the Arab Spring, the rise of ISIS, of course, and the Muslim- 9-11, which is a whole topic in itself. Uh, I think uh, everyone, everyone has an opinion on this war. No. Uh, yes. But everyone has been affected by those two Gulf Wars and 9-11, because 9-11, I think, will be a, a point in one of your parts. Yeah, so yeah. It should We're, be a chapter. It should be a chapter. And I will make the claim that since 9-11, we as a society have just recovered from the flight restrictions that were caused from 9-11 this year or the year before. Mm-hmm. Flying has never... We have just recovered from it. It's insane that I can't think of flying pre 9-11 like when it was a bit more laxed yeah but i think the system and technology is what i mean it's not lax but mm-hmm. oh they yeah finally, but they the- finally integrated the security system that is seamless and no longer as crazy as it was during that post 9-11 flight craze now the thing about 9-11 um i thought about it uh when i was doing the notes how much i would cover from 9-11 but again, because it's he said topic, yeah. it's a whole topic onto its, it's own. It's a MacGuffin to get to the Iraq war. Because 9-11 is what caused 9-11 or the things leading up to 9-11. Was so much. Because you could go to the Afghan, Afghan Soviet war, Mujahideen and all that, American imperialism, the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know what I mean? Like all these, I think it's almost built up to 9-11. And the 9-11 was a new era of history. Agreed, agreed. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's fair to differentiate that to the audience that 9-11 won't be the theme of this. It's more about the war itself. Yeah. And another thing is I tried so hard. Um, Not too far. <laughs> but in Not the so end. Fast. And um, it's, I think it's been 20 years since Metro as well. No? Yeah. Yeah. The anniversary. So yeah. tie, tie in, bro. <laughs> yeah. We got We're going to make a Linkin Park reference somewhere. Yeah. Um, Metro was a... Post nine album. <laughs> album to help us go through that Iraq war. For sure, for sure. This is like this is for all the people who are struggling with. You know, the thing is, like I said, we have our own way of interpreting the Iraq war because we kind of felt uh, growing up in a school, a British school, during in the Middle East during during the second the announcement of the second Gulf War, and everything that happened caused an effect of that. Yeah, for sure. It's hard not to have an opinion on the war. It's hard to fathom uh, to people that we had military security in for most of our school life. Exactly, yeah. We had military guards with AKs protecting our schools. Yeah. Because of that. But we'll try. Um, we will talk about how America's involvement in Iraq does not only stem from the first Gulf War. And it all actually goes all the way back when Britain kind of fell out. But do you want to start things off? Let's start. Part one, once upon a time in Iraq. At the center of our world lies the Middle East, and at its very heart, the ancient land which is Iraq. Two great rivers span its length, the Tigris and Euphrates. In the plain, made rich and fertile by their waters, the earliest civilizations known to man were born. Out of this ancient heritage, the citizens of one of the world's youngest nations are building a new life and a modern state. Now, Iraq was founded in 65,000 BCE. Earliest civilization. 
let me just keep going. Like, guys, we're gonna go start from the Sorry, BC. Uh, just to address that thread that since the 1900s, you're saying this mm. has been something brewing. And once again, I always say this: I'm 100 sure in the history book, this will all be condensed in one chapter. Yeah, yeah Iraq sure. will be a paragraph. It'll sure. be a paragraph. It'll be like the Hundred Year Iraq War. <laughs> right? Yeah, it'll be something like that. So, Iraq, we said, is uh, Iraq was a home to a Neolithic culture. <laughs> I was just making a joke. I think uh, that how like. We'll start every backstory by going all the way to 65,000 BCE yeah. <laughs> and just kick off from there. Let's go there yeah. Anyway, so let's say for Iraq. So for nearly 400 years, Iraq has been under the Ottoman rule. Let's start from there, okay? So I'm the audience. Here. Yeah, yeah, of course. And it came as a result of a conf- conflict of a <laughs> between the Safids Empire in Iran and the Turkish. So they wanted to create a buffer zone that would separate the two empires from attacking each other. Iraq was that, which is something that history will come to uh, repeat the border disputes between uh, Iran. How middle is middle in the Middle East? It's Iraq. It's Iraq, 100%. <laughs> the, Sa- the Safavids, uh, yeah, for sure, <laughs> was the first uh, nation to declare, it's, to declare that the Shia religion was the official religion of the country. They was looking to control Iraq because of the two holy sites in Iraq, which is Karbala and Najaf. Uh, the Ottomans, on the other hand, wanted to quell the Shia spread into Anatolia and saw Iraq as a good buffer zone between the two warring nations. So the Ottoman uh, Iran beef was a Shia Sunni beef? Yeah. You mind if I push this a bit back? Yeah, I do. Wait, is it like right under? You're going to mess the thing. Okay, fine, fine. Yeah, no, 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 fine. Push. No, fine. Push. Yes. Now you know how tough it is sitting here. Yes, I'll just sit like that. That's why I bring the mic. Okay. It's not nice sitting in the audience seat. No, it's not. Yeah, we're, we're kind of sitting in opposite. But this is a nice seating, no? Where I usually no. sit. No, not me. You, where you're <laughs> sitting. <laughs> So during the Ottoman period, the Sunnis were able to take advantage of a new and economic educational opportunities while the Shias were frozen out of the political process once the Ottomans took over. So this is the first time we see that the, Shia, the Sunni minority started ruling over the Shia majority, which is something that would plague Iraq for years and years and years to come. By the 17th century, frequent conflicts with the Safavids empire had sapped the strength of the Ottoman and had weakened its control over its provinces, right? Uh, the nomadic population swelled with flux of the Bedouins from Najd, in the Arabian Peninsula. Bedouin raids on settled areas became impossible to curb, and between 747 and 1831, Iraq was ruled by the Mameluk dynasty, Gregorian uh, origins, who had succeeded in obtaining autonomy from the Ottoman Empire. And they suppressed these tribal uh, revolts and curbed the power and restored order and introduced a program of modernization of the economy and the military. So Iraq broke free from... The Ottomans. Yeah. That whole beef. Exactly. Well, until 1831, where the Ottomans managed to overthrow the the Mamelik regime and impose a direct control over Iraq. The population of Iraq at that time was 30 million at 800 AD under the Islamic Empire. It was a empire. proper empire, but it was like, a, I guess, a puppet-ish yeah. empire. Yeah. But by, because of all the infighting, it entered the 20th century with a population of only 5 million. A little bit of the geography, the land of Iraq existed at three distinct distinctive semi-autonomous provinces um, within the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire divided Iraq into three different provinces. Uh, in each of these, you had you had different ethnic groups based on either religion or ethnicity, right? So you had the Shia, the Sunni, 
and the Kurds. Of course. With the veneer of the Ottoman rule resting atop of these complex networks of local clans and tribal alliances. Because don't forget, like most Arab countries in the peninsula, it's all run by tribes. Each tribe has their own custom and way of dealing things. By World War I, the Ottoman Empire had sided with the German and the Austrian-Hungarian alliance or the empires. This meant that Britain pretty much in war with the Ottomans. So Britain tried to uh, raise an Arab revolt against the Ottomans to kind of ease or quell the war in the Middle East. So Britain forged an alliance with Emir Hassan of the Hejaz region, which is now the western part of Saudi Arabia. It was called the 1915 Pact, which was mutually advantageous. Promised Emir Hassan of Hejaz that he would have the independence of the whole Arab world for him. And he would rule it, his dynasty would rule it. Uh, but unbeknownst to him, Britain had already made a pact with uh, France that it would uh, divide the countries between them after World War One. Yeah, so they tricked him uh, yeah. for, the, for the time being to rise up against the Ottoman. Yeah, this is called the, the Sykes-Pictou Agreement. Britain and uh, France would carve up the Middle East. Yeah. So those future independent Arab nations were not going to be independent, nor will they have a future and they won't even be nations. They'll just be resources for these two empires. Uh, the Arab part will be carved in uh, so t- into two parts. So you had the greater Syria area and Mesopotamia, which would be divided between France and Britain, with Britain taking Mesopotamia and France taking the greater Syria area, which would take Syria, Jordan, no, sorry, Syria and Lebanon. Mesopotamia would go from Palestine to Jordan to Iraq. I mean, what's the point of a war when you can't enjoy the spoils of a victory, right? Uh, so this double cross was sealed in what we call the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, uh, which I think you think, or we both think, is like the Treaty of Versailles 100% future episode, yeah, right? for sure. It was again solidified at the San Remo Conference in April 1920. Under the terms of these agreements, France was handed Greater Syria, like I said, and Britain would be taking the other parts, the home of Middle East. And don't forget that Britain also had Egypt under its control as well. At that time, yeah. Exactly. So it had Egypt, Sudan, Arabia, Syria, uh, Jordan, they Palestine, Iraq. Yeah. Loki, France took the short end of the stick in that Definitely, one. Yeah. But then France were also the weaker one at the war. Uh, and this is when uh, Britain and France would kind of fuck things up with the creation of what we call artificial states. So they would start drawing boundaries or borders, not taking into consideration the ethnicities that live within. Like what they did in Africa. What they did with Africa. And the key example of an artificial state is Iraq. Uh, so what's an artificial state? It's those states or nations that don't coincide with the division of nationalities desired by the people on the ground. All nation states are somewhat artificial states to a certain degree, but at some point there's some national identity. identity. Shout out to our last episode on nationalism. Iraq did not have that. Because you had Kurds, Sunnah, Shia. And it's also a strategy to keep them always divided, right? Yeah, so they can't really unify. Yeah, because they know that there's just a bunch of different concepts in one area. Exactly, 100%. To quote David Frumkin from the book A Peace to End All Peace, he says, It was an era in which Middle Eastern countries and frontiers were fabricated in Europe. Iraq and what we now call Jordan, for example, were British inventions. Lines drawn on an empty map by British politicians after the First World War. While the boundaries of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Iraq were established by the British civil servant in 1922. So how about the promise they made to Amir Hassan from the Hejaz in 1915, akin to a future independent Arab state? Well, the British had tweaked it somewhat by then. Uh, you see, because after World War I, there was a new commodity that was becoming valued. Oil. Oil. 
And on Iraq's, on Iraq, on Iraq's luck, it was sitting on a shit ton of oil yep. that Britain kind of wanted. Today, the Prime Minister and Mr. H.S. Gibson, Managing Director of the Basra Petroleum Company, open a new oil field which will bring wealth to the country. Premier Nouri Pasha El Said turns on a valve and the oil begins its flow to the markets of the world. But that's why when they said to the guy, the guy was like, what about my independent Arab state? They're like, yeah, about that. Yeah. Um, we just found something we really coveted. We really Over coveted. There, yeah. uh, London suggested that perhaps these places should have a special administration to look after them. One of the villas that was discovered where a lot of oil will be discovered is a, country, is a city that we all know from recently, Mosul or Masold. And England eyed the fuck out of that area because it was sitting on an oil mine. So instead of creating one Arab state, Iraq became its own nation once it separated so, Iran, uh, so Britain could have its eye on, on it. The oil, yeah. And actually Britain didn't present this as a, as a land grab. You know, the British have an interesting way of like claiming altruistic reasons to take over a country sure, yeah. as something America with a hundred percent copy all the time. yeah Britain was there to ensure that there was a civilized transition from the Ottoman Empire into one where the Iraqis can govern itself how many times have we heard this before? all the time all the time for the top 10 awful American remakes you know what I mean like it's if you like uh, what's his name Homelander and uh, Soldier Boy Soldier Boy yeah so every time Britain does like every time America does something Chances are, it's just a remake of something Britain did a hundred years earlier, you know? So yeah, so America would remake this 80 years later about them be going into Iraq to, to transition it to a modern society. When the local leaders complained, Britain simply dismissed them and replaced them with pro-British bureaucrats, ignoring tribal leaders and, pla- and placed British civilian, uh, civilian service in their places. And to ensure that these civilian servants were cool, they placed soldiers to protect them. To the, to the few Britons who had some familiarity with what with the corners of the Arab world, this kind of brought like an impending calamity. One famous person who would complain about this was T. E. Lawrence, or better known as Lawrence of Arabia. As Lawrence wrote to a newspaper editor in September 1919 regarding the tensions in Iraq, he said. And I quote, if we don't mend our ways, I will expect a revolt about the march next. Of course, Lawrence of Arabia is a whole different episode. His prediction wasn't wrong. The only thing that was wrong about it was that it didn't come in March, but it came in June. Three months off. Uh, Three months off. A revolt actually came about uh, with both Sunni and Shia Iraqis uniting to demonstrate against the British. Wow. Uh, Especially with the British new land ownership and bureau taxes. Uh, the British tried to quell the revolt by arresting uh, a sheikh from one of the Zualem tribe, and he would eventually be freed by his warriors. The revolt soon gained momentum as the British um, garrisons in the mid-Euphrates region was weak, and by late July, the armed tri- and the armed rebels controlled most of the mid-Euphrates region. The success of the tribes caused the revolt to spread in lower parts of uh, uh, Iraq and all around Baghdad. Uh, the British War Secretary at the time, Winston Churchill, uh, authorized the immediate uh, reinforcements from Iran to include two squadrons from the Royal Air Force. Oh, serious? Yeah, the, so this was the first time that they used aircrafts to quell a rebellion. Wow. And this played a huge role in ending the revolt. Some tribes worked against the revolt, and, then, and also there were some tribesmen who were kind of with the British side because they did profit from the British. The oil yeah. Craze. 
Eventually, the rebels began to run low on supplies and funding and could not find support for much longer, and the British forces just became more effective. The revolt ended about uh, four months later, on October 1920, when Najaf and Karbala suffered bomb attacks. The British went as far as Najaf wanting... But by the way, side note, uh, Winston Churchill kind of wanted also to drop mustard gas on the Iraqis, but... Uh, he couldn't, uh, they couldn't get, get it. Get the approval. Yeah. So extreme. He Don't probably f- wanted to test out his weapons there. Winston Churchill, by the way, is one of the most whitewashed politicians if there was ever one. It's pretty evil. He's one of the most, if not one of the most barbaric, uh, ironic because he calls everyone else barbaric who's not British, barbaric, racist, uh, warmongering prime yeah. ministers. That's why he, f- if after World War II, he failed. His, his, um, he lost by a huge ass margin, by the way. Because he's a war guy. He's a war guy. He... A terrible guy as well. Yeah. Anyways, he didn't get the results he wanted, but nonetheless, villages were raised to the ground, and to or in order to quell the uprisings. In one is in one instance, the British commanders gave orders to raise every single town and village along a 100 kilometer of the Euphrates. And for his um, hard work, he would become secretary of the state of uh, for the colonies. And he would look to Lawrence of Arabia to help him in moving forward. So they both start lobbying the Hassan dynasty, Amir Faisal, to take over Iraq and be made king. While his other son, Abdullah, would be, in Jordan, would be placed in Jordan. King Abdullah in Jordan would continue the Hashemite rule in Jordan till now. Which is Loki, I think, the most successful case of a colonial kingdom. Jordan, yeah, like one king placed by Britain that still remains. As it is. Yeah. Iraq, on the other hand, not so much. So the 35-year-old prince who never set foot in Iraq barely understood the dialect of the Iraqis, who, to quote Walsh, the author of Belk, Desert Queen, he had no knowledge of the Iraqi tribes, no friendships with any of their sheikhs, no familiarity with the terrain. He didn't know the marshes in the south. He didn't know the mountains in the north, the game fields, the river life, and no sense of connection with this ancient past. But despite this, they thought he was the right man for the job. Of course. <laughs> um, you gotta love colonialism. Yeah. They thought he had the charisma to hold the new country together. He had also had a lineage that goes back to Prophet Muhammad. So, of course, in British fashion, they had to say, oh, no, this, was done. this is going to be a national referendum if they want the king. Of course. A uh, election. Yeah, yeah. He won by 96% margin. Of course. Um, America would later do this with every single Latin American country. Like I said, Britain did it first, you know. And then they would write in a letter to the British, we've got our king crowned. King Faisal would kind of go speak in lengths about how he wanted Iraq to become the beacon of the Middle East. As, as you'll see, like a lot of people found that he was more favorable to pro-Western Sunni Arabs of Baghdad and the central region than any other ethnicity, who barely made 20% of the population. More of half of the Iraqis were Shiites, or Shia, and they were concentrated in the south. And, there ha- and you had 20% of the Kurds living up north. So it was 20% Sunni, 20%, 20% uh, Shia, uh, sorry, uh, Kurds, and then the rest were Shia. Yeah, the rest were Shia. Uh, or like about 50% were Shia. And of course, then you have like in the middle fringes. Yeah, yeah. Listen. I think uh, like Iraqi Jews and Christians, uh, Assyrians, Caldonians, I think they call them. Okay, cool. And the rem- yeah, the remainder of the, rem- I even wrote it, the remainder included Jews, Assyrians, and other minorities. So it was left for King Faisal to deal with the Iraqi nationalists who, with a new constitution that was drawn up by the British, uh, which, the king, which was issued to the king after the Anglo-Iraq Treaty. 
uh, which would provide that the maintenance of the British military bases, which gave the British officials a veto over legislation in Iraq, and would perpetuate British influence over the financial and international matters for 20 years. So Britain was a, the board members and what's the name of the CEO? Yeah. King Faisal in Britain assured Bell that he favored the treaty, but in public speeches, he would criticize it, but stopping short from removing any of the mandates. I'm he, sure he was well-intentioned, it seems. Maybe, I wouldn't, I don't know. He was just like, oh, okay. He wouldn't rule for long, though. He would pass away in 1932, at the age of 48, from a heart attack. After his death, the British were able to undermine the government and the monarchy by constantly putting pressure on them to serve British interests, which of course included oil, oil, foreign affairs in the Gulf regions and other issues. The only successful thing the British had ever given to the Iraqis was quote-unquote independence, but not in the sense that you think or we think. Like there was no constitutional system where they could rule themselves. There was no there was no system that would help them to integrate different clans and make up Iraq as a whole. They just fueled Iraq's sense of we need to break away from the British. That's the only form of independence that they gave was that we need to be independent from these foreigners. In 1930s, the... The, Bagh- the Baghdad press rallied against the British government, RAF, that control, uh, control who called the 1920 rebellion. What's the RAF? The Royal Air Force. Okay. Uh, king Ghazi, a King Faisal's son, took the throne at the age of 21. Uh, but he didn't really uh, have his father's diplomatic skills or work ethics. He was a party goer. He was 21. Yeah, 21. He even upset the British because at that time, Britain was trying to give Kuwait its independence. And he said that Kuwait was actually a part of Iraq and denounced the Kuwaiti ruling family. Oh, wow. Which would start a whole other... Yeah. Uh, He would be mortally wounded in a car crash where his sports car met a utility pole after an evening of drinking. And even so, violent street demonstrations erupted in Baghdad the next day. In uh, Mosul, a mob killed the British consul there. For years, many Iraqis insisted that Ghazi had been killed by the British and their allies for his denouncement of Kuwait. Uh, He was succeeded by his son, Faisal II, who would reign as king of Iraq until 1958. A lot of Faisals and Ghazi. Yeah. Shout out to Faisal Ghazi. Yeah. We did a horror episode. Horror episode, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, King Faisal II was still a boy when he was... Take it when he would take over the reign. So his uncle. It's crazy because it's like a pre 1900s archaic royalty system. Yeah, yeah. Where like it's a child would be king. Yeah. Yeah. His his uncle. In the post World Wars, that's like done. In the West, it was right. You have it. You think so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think that oh, like by the 1900s, it's either you're a parliamentary or monarchy, you're an older king, and yeah. All that stuff, yeah. But you're a king without really a power. You just cut ribbons. Or you're, or you're a king in your 40s. Yeah. Uh, he would be ruled with his uncle, Abdullah, a faithful ally to the British, and a person named Nuri al-Sad, or Nuri Sayyid. Fun fact, uh, Nuri would become prime minister eight times from the 1930s to the 1950s. He would go, come back, he would go, come back. Britain would always take him out, put him back in, take him out, put him back in. Indecisive. Indecisive, man. But some, like, have some self-respect, bro. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? She, she dumped you, bro. Yeah. British interests seemed firmly back in the saddle, but not, the nationalist officers at the time of Iraq by 1958 were kind of having enough with this. Because by the 1930s, Arab leaders were also angered by the number of European Jews migrating to Palestine at that time. And they thought that this was helped by British mandates. Mm-hmm. So this kind of started to get an ire of the Arabs who were living in the region. Also, 
it was angered by the fact that the British had suppressed a revolt by the Palestinian Arabs in 1939. Iraqi army officers were actually invited uh, to Jerusalem uh, to fight to help the Palestinians out. And then when World War II began, Iraq's, uh, Iraqis started supporting Hitler just to get rid of the British. Wow. That's how much they despised the British. Uh, this is why we have like this constant thing in the Middle East where they look favorably to Towards Hitler because they, they were so antagonized by the British. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was widely acknowledged that the most of the junior officers in the Iraqi army are pro-German and anti-British. A U.S. diplomat in Baghdad wrote in 1984. Iraq attempted to ally itself with Germany and in 1941 threatened to fire uh, on British planes that left any airfield near Baghdad. You also have the exploitation of the country's newfound oil wealth, which, were, which propelled an economic boom in the 40s, but only enriched the higher-ups yeah. and the British. Uh, ordinary people were still suffering huge uh, inflation of prices, but they weren't getting any money in return. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up! In 1941, a man called Rashid Ali, a civilian figurehead in the Iraqi army, led by four colonels, tried to stage a coup. The British Royal Forces, Royal Air Forces, were stationed on the outskirts of Baghdad and held the Iraqi army at bay while the British reinforcements from India landed in Basra and started marching north. By June, the British had, contr had control of Baghdad and Rashid Ali's two-month rule ended when, the, when he fled to Berlin. The rest of the four colonels were hanged for their efforts. A young Iraqi child at the time who would later become one of the most, if not the most famous Iraqi president, would say that the coup had affected him so deeply as a child. The more on this dude later. Uh, one of the most important outcomes of the Second World War was also the emergence of a new balance of power. As you know, like with the end of the Second World War, it was literally the, de the death of the old world and it was the beginning of a new world. There was two new superpowers that came to fill the vacuum that was left by Britain, France, and Germany. Those, of course, were... Russia. Russia and the United States. And on top of that, you also have the emergence of Israel, as a, which with further destabilized the political relations in the Middle East between the West and the Arabs. In 1952, what the British would call the crisis in Egypt. From Cairo come these first authentic pictures of the bloodless coup by which the army took over control of Egypt. It was the end of the king's attempt to maintain power. Troops in the street were the first indication of the change to most people, until with the broadcasting station seized, it was announced that General Naguib, the commander-in-chief whom Farouk refused as war minister, had taken control. One of the most industrialized and populous countries of the region found this expression in the free, in the free officers' coup against the British-backed monarchy. Uh, the populist nationalist rhetoric of the coup struck a chord with most Arab countries, uh, with a mass movement on the streets pushing the free officers uh, to the left or to left-leaning left-leaning movements, and they proclaimed themselves to be uh, pan-Arabs. Pan this, of course, was uh, championed by maybe the most charismatic and well-known leader from this, Jamal Abdel Nasser, mm -hmm. who came to the fore with his ideas of Arab unity and be, pretty much became the Arab, the Arab defiance to the British. He became so the, the face of a defiance. Arab nationalism. Yeah. But not just to... A in specific to a country, it was in specific to a region. Exactly, yeah. Increasingly, Jamal Abdel Nasser's regime turned into, into the direction of the Soviet Union for political favor and military support. And he based himself on the popular mood of the workers and the poor, right? He nationalized much of the property of the imperialist powers. And soon, Syria would join the fold. 
and would begin to go into face the direction of the USSR. And by the 1960s, even went as far as completely getting rid of its ruling class and creating the first planned economy in the Middle East. Albeit it was a bit bureaucratic and very close to Stalinism more than like socialism. But that's another debate for later. Mm-hmm. You have Syria and Egypt both making a successful cut from... It's interesting to see this happening again now, but it's not Britain, it's America. Yeah, America has begun to lose... Uh, the England of what's ha- what you're saying now. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, in 1956, this kind of escalated to the point where Abdel Nasser nationalized the Swiss Canal. Of course, uh, took the ire of the British even more because I think that was the last stand for the British. Yeah. was the Kanatsu Swiss. Then there was a union with Syria was declared in 1958 and it was called the United Arab Republic, the UAR. The move was met with a huge popular enthusiasm across the Arab world as the beginning of a much yearned socialist unification of the Arab people. Two weeks later, the Western-backed Jordan and the Iraqi government established their own version, or like I guess the wish version of this. It's called the Arab Union, which didn't even last a year. <laughs> It's the end of your silver and black. <laughs> uh, exactly. They forgot about them, yeah. Yeah. The reality, of course, was more complicated. So while resting on mass movements to deliver blows against imperialists, Abdel Nasser didn't really break away from capitalism, as he would claim. Meanwhile, his regime operated along the classical, what we call the Napoleon Bonaparte line, uh, with communists and trade unions frequently being subjugated by police brutality in Egypt. So communists were rounded up and arrested during Abdel Nas- uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser's reign, by the way. Like them and the Muslim Brotherhood. The unification with Syria, meanwhile, was seen on the Egyptian side as a means to expand markets for Egyptian goods. And on the Syrian side, it was seen as a chance to liquidate all political opposition within the country, and particularly the mass Syrian Communist Party. Mm-hmm. So they had Abdel Nasser help purge the communists in Syria as well. Uh, nevertheless, in Iraq... Uh, Anti-British passions were further inflamed by the outbreak of the 1948 war in Palestine, where Iraqi troops fought on the Arabic side, as we said. So by then, the Iraq had a sense of Arab unity ever since 1948. We want to join what what others are doing. We are all Arabs now. And and I guess in a weird way, the war in Palestine created this sense of unity that, listen, we're all together in this. You know what I mean? There's a foreign invasion happening. This country, this illegally formed like settlement. When? So by 1956, when uh, Ramadan Nasser was getting, like, wrestling the British for Swiss Canal, this kind of also sparked up an Iraqi fever. By 1958, a nationalist army officer named uh, Abdul Karim Qasim <laughs> led a popular coup against the pro-British regime. He angered Western superpowers by taking Iraq out of the so-called Baghdad Pact. So what was the Baghdad Pact or the Middle East Treaty Organization or the MITO? METO. MUTO. METO. MUTO. It was a a military alliance of the Cold War, which was established in 1955 by Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Turkey, and the United Kingdom with the main purpose to prevent communist incursions in the country. So they got rid of that and they kicked off the coup. He was also hoping to get rid of the pro-Western monarchy. And he wanted to nationalize foreign oil companies. Uh, of course, was the ironically named the Iraq Petroleum Group, the IPG, which was founded, started by Britain, yeah. and did not give anything to the Iraqis. 
So the irony in naming that. Mm-hmm. Also, he wanted um, he wanted to re uh, redistribute land ownership because it became tremendously concentrated in the hands of the few. Mm-hmm. For example, forty nine families own sixteen percent of Iraqi land. Wow, which is it's crazy. On July fourteenth, a group of free officers, a secret military group of mostly uh, Sunnah Iraqis, led by Abdul Karim Qasim, Abdul Karim Qasim. Uh, seized control of Baghdad's uh, broadcasting station where one of his associates, Colonel Abdul Salam Arif, more on him later, de- would denounce imperialism and the clique in the office that, cl- that controlled Iraq and proclaim the new republic and the end of the old regime. He would then dispatch two detachments to the palace to deal with King Faisal II and his crown prince. The other went to the prime minister. At approximately 8 a.m., the, cr- the king and the crown prince and the princess Hayam, or I guess his cousin, Princess Nafisa, Princess Abdiya, and other members of the Iraqi family were all killed. No. Yeah. Only Princess Hayam survived, and she would later go on like a tirade about how like in- the injustice she felt. But with the demise, the Iraqi Hashemite dynasty had ended. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the prime minister temporarily slipped away, and he would run away, and they would offer 10,000 Iraqi dinars for anyone who could capture him. Wow. They're um, for blood. Uh, for blood, on July 15th, he was spotted in the streets of, uh, of the Al-Batawan quarter in Baghdad, attempting to escape, disguised in a woman's abaya. And he was caught and he was shot. His, ba- his body would be buried in a cemetery later that evening. Mob violence continued in the wake of his death, spurred by Arif to liquidate traitors. So they would send out people in mobs and streets to liquidate any traitors or any pro-regime members. Um, it must have been messy though Yeah, the, the body of the king's uncle Was taken from the palace Mutilated and dragged through the streets And finally hung outside the ministry of defense Several foreign nationals Including Jordanian and American citizens Staying in Baghdad were killed in the mob Mass mob violence did not die down Until Qasim imposed the curfew uh, Which still did not prevent dissidents or mutilation Or parading around with the corpse of the prime minister They dug up the prime minister's body And dragged him across the street uh-huh. That's how much the people were fed up with this bullshit. It's crazy how they can turn animalistic again. Yeah, mm. would be like another. Gaddafi. Any region, yeah. When you're so like, when you're so caged in, and you finally have the expression to let it out, like you, you have so much bottled in anger. You like, what would you do? You know what I mean? It's violent. Yeah, that's it's interesting how it is. Now let's stop here for a second and let's see what America has been doing up to this point. Okay, so America has been uh, trying to... America has started getting interest in Middle East. So when the 1958 uh, revolt happened, or the coup happened, they start, They sent Marines to Beirut. Uh, of course, with John Berthiol. As the Marine. <laughs> the Marine. John, John Cena. Cena. So they sent John Cena to Beirut. Mm-hmm. You want some? Come get some! And thus began the era of America's endless interest in the Middle East, all in quotation marks. This was the beginning of that day. Because Britain went to America and like, we need to stop this cube. Mm. When America landed their soldiers in Beirut, this was the beginning. Mm. Uh, backed by three carrier battle groups, a Marine Corps battalion in full combat gear stormed the beaches near Beirut on July 15, 1958. At its peak, it was about 15,000 marine officers. At the same time, Brit- the Brits would deploy paratroopers in Amman, and they would coordinate a Western intervention intended to prop up a friendlier government in Iraq. President Dwight David Eisenhower, who you said yesterday was the, most, the least hypocritical president, <laughs> avoided sending troops to fight for the first eight years in office. Yeah. He was not interested. Good man. 
Yeah, but he sent them to Beirut because of the coup of July 14th in Baghdad. But Baghdad, I guess, was the, black, the last straw. In the 1950s, Iraq was what, the West's strongest ally in the Arab world. It was ruled by the Hashemite royal family and united in a loose federation with Jordan as well. Iraq was also the only country to join the so-called Baghdad Pact that Eisenhower envisioned as the Middle East's version of NATO. America's greatest opponent in the region at the time was Egypt. They did not get what was Jamal Abdel Nasser. Jamal Abdel Nasser demonized Israel, France, and England, and he also sought he was seen as maybe like the stalking horse for the Soviet Union. In early 1958, Egypt and Syria, like we said, were united under one banner, the United, the united Arab Republics. And this is when uh, America started getting worried about the Middle East. Coup in Iraq came also as a complete surprise to the American and British intelligence. They did not know it was going to happen. Washington panicked. Uh, usually the unflappable Eisenhower convened a National Security Council emergency meeting on July 14th with the director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, who estimated that the coup would lead a wave of pro-Egyptian regime change across the Arab world. Uh, Lebanon and Jordan would collapse. That's what the CIA said. Vice President Richard Nixon <laughs> suggested an intervening in Baghdad. Eisenhower later said in his memoirs, he feared the, we feared the worst, to quote, complete elimination of Western influence in the Middle East. It was then he ordered the Marines to assault the beaches in Beirut to save the Lebanese government. And the British were sent to deploy to back up King Hassan of Jordan. The landing was also very comical. The Marines expected like some kind of D-Day Uh, like, oh, they're going to land on the, let's storm the beaches of Normandy yeah. type of thing. But when they, <laughs> when they landed in Lebanon, <laughs> they saw women and tourists in bikinis and boys selling cigarettes on the yeah. beach. <laughs> That's like straight out of hot shots. Hot shots, shots yeah. yeah. <laughs> they thought they were like entering this war, war zone. zone yeah. And like imagine you come down and you run and you just see like tourists sunbathing and kids like offering you to buy, to sell, buy cigarettes from them. The Marines were, inside, yeah. yeah. Like the Marines were actually thinking that they were going to enter the capital and suppress rebels, you know? And they had like nuclear weapons prepared in Germany just to like deploy in case the beach was overrun. <laughs> That's so comical, man. Yeah, within days, it became apparent that the coup in Baghdad was not controlled by Jamal Abdel Nasser. He had nothing to do with it. And instead, the new Iraqi regime was something, was going to become something to rival Egypt as who would become the king of Arab nationalism. Mm-hmm. Eisenhower sent a senior diplomat to Beirut, who eased uh, the president of Beirut out of office and replaced him with an army commander. Uh, the conflict was diffused as the Muslims felt vindicated. The Marines came home, the crisis passed, and Eisenhower reverted to his customary cautious approach of not doing anything. The intervention was also criticized in Congress. A young senator named John Fitzgerald Kennedy, I uh, said that the administration was demonizing Abdel Nasser, Abdel Nasser, who was not a Soviet puppet, and we should work with Arab nationalisms against the Soviets. That's what he said. He predicted that the remaining monarchies in Arabia would be swept away if they did not reform. And his colleague, William Fulbright, was against the intervention in Beirut and argued against it on, on the 14th in the White House. Britain, on the other hand, deployed troops in, like, in Jordan in the request of the King Hussein, a relative to the monarchy. That got got in Iraq. Again, nothing really happened. Like the coup was a success. It would kind of give rise in their own to two different to two people who become major players in the fate of Iraq for years to come. A guy named Ahmed Jalabi or Shalabi and Saddam Hassan. More on them in a second. Like they would be so affected by the 1958 coup that it would kind of change the like, directions of their country. Like it uh, motiv- motivated them. Yeah. Inspired. I'll tell you what Ahmed Jalabi is famous for. 
The coup would also send a precedent for the use of violence and terror and conspiracy to demonize and target individuals. During the first five months of the coup, uh, General Kasim would survive two assassination attempts mm. organized by the, the colonel who he took over the stations, Abdul Sal, uh, Salam Arif. Oh, what a betrayer. Yeah, because he was pro Nasser and he felt that Kasim wasn't Nasserist enough. Wow. He's like, like we were supposed to unite with Abdul Abdel Nasser. He wanted his own era. Yeah. Uh, he would later be tried and arrested, uh, Abdul Salam. And this would create a short-lived feud between Qasim and Jamal Abdel Nasser, with Jamal Abdel Nasser blaming Qasim that he was conspiring with the communists and the British to rule to ruin the Middle East. Uh, Qasim's other feuds consisted of new nationalist parties, including the Ba'ath Party, mm-hmm. who thought that he was too easygoing on the communists as well. In land because at that time Qasim was kind of hanging out with the communists, he tried to use them for support and leverage. He would, uh, he would consult them for land reform, labor laws, laws on health, education, and most importantly, he wanted the communists to help him end the war with Kurdistan, or with okay. the Kurds. The CIA, of course, was having none of this shit. They're like, you know what? Kill him. Kill him now. Do it. We're out of this. Uh, they sent Kasim a poisoned handkerchief <laughs> as a present. <laughs> But perhaps one of the most popular. <laughs> They're so like comical, <laughs> right? It's like a Mel Brooks movie, man. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently, like the handkerchief, like I think it poisoned one of his assistants who opened it first. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, you know what I mean. Like it, <laughs> like you could also see the comedic, like, like, yeah, like yeah, absolutely, it's crazy. <laughs> but uh, one of the most popular assassination attempts came on the seventh of October, nineteen fifty nine, when the CIA backed the six man assassination squad outside of. Uh, Rashid Street in Baghdad. The night before, one of the would-be assassins would fall sick, and they would recruit a new 20-year-old Ba'ath Party sympathizer to take his place. The young man was aggressive in nature, but he was but he was an excellent handler handler of firearms, who have been rumored to have carried his first murder at the age of 15. And if you like, if you believe the stories, his name was Saddam Hussein Atikridi. Although the assassination attempt Sony zoom in on his face. Yeah, yeah. Tony, <laughs> although although the assassination attempt failed, after Saddam, who was only supposed to be cover, got a bit enthusiastic and opened fire at Qasim. And one of the hitmen who were supposed to shoot him accidentally shot one of his friends. Uh, Saddam Hussein also got shot in the leg from a friendly crossfire. Um so another where like even the assassins were shooting themselves by mistake. Yeah. He, Custom was untouchable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I could just see him, like... Not even realizing. Yeah, walking idly by. Like, what is it? Bullets around him, yeah. <laughs> or, like, the assistant smells yeah, like... Yeah, I'm sure him, like, just collapses behind him. <laughs> they should just take, like... I think they should not, like, don't overdo it. Just go to go through the CIA catalogs of assassination attempts, and you can make a nice parody movie. Uh, about it, yeah. Like, like, even, like, when they Castro, like, all the assassination attempts on Castro, the weird ones. Uh, Saddam Hussein would be forced to dance, and he would leave uh, Iraq for three years, and he would stay in Egypt, in hiding. It was kind of rumored that the Americans had met Saddam in Egypt at that time when he went to visit the U.S. Embassy. More on that later. The other side of the coin, we said there was a man named Ahmed Chalabi who was affected by the, the, the 1958 coup. He was the son of a prominent Shiite family. Born in 1945, his families were bank owners with the ties to the monarchy and to the British. His family would also 
once they saw the writing in the wall, they kind of would bounce from Iraq and they would and they would spend most of their lives in the US and in London. And ever since then, he would spend his whole life trying to get Iraq back to the monarchy days. It was his long life passion to get rid of the, the Iraqi nationalists or the Sunni nationalists. He wanted to go back how his parents remember. Yeah. So back to the 60s where we stopped. Uh, Abdul Qasim would finally move against the communists and suspend their party. He's like, you know what? I used you guys enough. And he would go look for the military for assistance and to research its influence and its control. So several pro-communist officers had been dismissed. Dismissed Measures had been taken to restore the confidence in the economy and the Iraqis started to show interest in establishing a culture and business agreement with the United States. I kill a communist for fun. For, for a green card. I'm going to carve him up real nice. And even though Iraq kind of stabilized during the 1960s, in 1961 and 2, it would be embroiled in what we call like a series of crises. So by 1961, it was ready to open the doors with America. But by then, this is the problem with Qasim because he was non-political. He kept like going back and forth so many times. No ideology. What was his role at that time? Just president. Uh, he was the president. Yeah, Qasim. Like he, uh, Qasim, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Qasim, like we said, his first series of crises was on June 25th, 1961, when he declared Kuwait as a part of Iraq and mobilized his troops on the border. The catalyst of his actions, of course, was that Britain had just gained, has gave Kuwait an independence on June 19th, like full, Briti- full independence from Britain, and it withdrew its military. So then Qasim saw it as an opportunity to say, okay, this land is mine now. Uh, the U.S. State Department officials noted, and I quote, Iraq was advancing an old Iraqi claim, uh, but one that has not in the past received much support from Arab states and has had no recognition in the world at large. See, the U.S. at that time, they were kind of interested in what was happening in Kuwait a bit because they own 50% of oil stakes in Kuwait. In the reserves. Yeah. And Britain was, um, was kind of interested in Kuwait because most of the oil that Britain was taking was well, from Kuwait. Kuwait. Uh, the Kennedy administration, because Kennedy was president at the time, Kennedy administration was hesitant though uh, because he felt this was a British action and that America shouldn't get involved because it could jeopardize the image of America being a progressive anti-colonial power that trying to work productively with the Arab nationalism. They had to fix up the image. Yeah. Uh, while Britain responded by sending 5,000 troops to Kuwait on July 1st, it was on July 1st. This was called Operation Vantage. Kennedy would dispatch a U.S. Navy to Bahrain to make sure that the situation was stabilized. The crisis did not, was not resolved until October when the British withdrew and, replaced, and was replaced by the Arab League force. In addition, former CIA official claims that Qasim was paid about 50, 50 to $60 million in bribes in exchange to allow Britain to withdraw. It's like, listen, he take 50, 60 million, like leave quit alone for a bit. Wow. So the British could leave. Wow. Yeah. It's uh, a good payout. <laughs> good payout indeed. Where did this money came from is unknown. But, by the, but in December 1961, Robert Comer, who was a senior of the NCS, the National Security Council, and Kennedy's advisor in Middle Eastern Affairs and, ambassadors, and an ambassador to Kuwait, Jernigan, had concluded that Kuwait's independence can only be assured if the ruler uses his fantastic oil revenues to buy support from other Arab leaders, including Abdel Nasser and the Jordanians. In other words, it was, they proposed that Kuwait to bribe other countries to lay off, to lay it off. So you know that's what, what they think happened with Qasim as well. Yeah. Crisis number two was brewing because now this was happening in the south in the north in the Kurdish area 
shit was brewing with Qasim as well. After their returning from exile, Qasim had promised a dude called Mullah Mustafa Barzani, a Kurdish member. He recalled him back from exile and he said that he was willing to give the Kurd autonomy. We almost finished each other's sentences, kind of. In northern Iraq. But by 1961, the government had taken no steps towards implementing this program, which led to Barzani to leave Baghdad earlier and return back to the north to... Uh, See what's going yeah. on. Of course, the problem is that Kurds back when kind of had like a Bedouin mentality where it was all tribal and clan warfare. So the tribes started attacking each other. This led to age-old feuds and skirmishes between rival tribes. On, on April 13th, the U.S. Intelligence Board warned the head of the CIA, Alan Doles, who Kennedy maintained as his position once Eisenhower left, that the laxity of the custom regime had permitted long-standing tribal feuds to rise out to the surface, and that the chances of writing in the towns and some, and some inter-tribal fighting on the modest scales were better than even. This warning was unheeded, of course. The CIA later acknowledged that they were far too optimistic that these battles would eventually stop. So throughout August, the U.S. officials in Iraq and Iran warned the State Department about a rebellion that was going to happen in Kurdistan. They did not even pay the attention to it. They're like, this could destabilize the region. They did not care. Yeah, On August 5th, the U.S. Consul- consulate in Tabriz warned that Iran and Turkey had been arming the Kurds <laughs> with weapons, and they were encouraging them to attack. America didn't listen. Uh, Barzani was, has, had emerged victorious between the tribe warfare, making him the most dominant military power in the north. Yeah, so he could take over. Within days, the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad reported that the senior Iraqi officials were pondering whether an effective deterrent would be to bomb the Kurdish villages. The U.S. Embassy sent to America, like, by the way, this is the army is saying, should we just, the army, of, the Iraqi army want to bomb villages in, Kurd, in the should Kurd villages. Should we villages. or no? Yeah, due to Qasim's profound distrust of the Iraqi army, which he purposely failed to adequately arm, uh, they weren't able to subdue most of the Kurdish to begin with. You know what I mean? They're like, like we can't subdue them. So the fighting started. This resulted in a stalemate uh, because, like I said, the army was so ill-equipped to deal with tribes. Tribes, yeah. The stalemate irritated powerful factions within the military because they're like, bro, like we can't, like how are we a military and we can't defeat rebels? You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, and this would be one of the main reasons why the Baths party would grow stronger in popularity. They thought that Qasim was weak. Yeah. Uh, throughout the fall of 1961, both Qasim and the Kurds tried to portray the conflict like in Cold War era terms. So like each one kept blaming that the other one was either working with the United States or with the Soviet Union. The Kurds uh, was be- were being described as American stooges. Qasim said that the United States were implicating Kurds to revolt. Well, he said that the Soviet Union were, were cool. They didn't do anything wrong. Meanwhile, the group of Kurds um, were kind of blaming that the Soviet Union was backing the Iraqi soldiers in attacking them. The Kurds would eventually approach the U.S. embassy in Baghdad to seek assistance in fighting Iraq, the Iraqi regime. The Kurds argued that the U.S. had a moral obligation to help the Kurds since it supports justice and liberty around the world. You got to keep up that image. Exactly. And they're like that the Kurdistan, if they were given an independent nation, they would be a good ally for the US and in, in a like and a good threat and a good deterrent to the Soviet Union. To this the embassy officer James Atkins discouraged the Kurds from revolting and said that as a matter of policy the US could not involve itself in Iraq's internal affairs, which is like the biggest cap if there was ever one, you know, yeah. as you could see as we will see later. And the third crisis of course, 
uh, that America and Iraq would go through was in the Iraq passed public law number 80, where Iraq expropriated 95% of the Iraq petroleum company's concessions. And it would announce that it would attend to start the Iraq National Oil Company in, by 1964. Oh, so they wanted to control the They oil. wanted to nationalize the oil. Um, by that, the way, that would have gotten America's attention. Yeah, Kennedy's administration towards Iraq had shifted from Eisenhower's administrations. So Eisenhower was more of like, let's wait and see. Kennedy was like, no, we need to Interrate. actually do something now. It's something we need to do covert action or overt action. Mm-hmm. First of all, the recognition among senior Kennedy administrations that they felt they need to be more aggressive in dealing with the Soviets, especially in Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. Yep. Secondly, Iraq's uh, nationalizing of the IPC uh, had convinced the uh, Kennedy administration that the Qasim was posing a threat to the U.S. interests. Where did you hear that before? Mm-hmm. These conclusions led to the adoption of a dual tactic, like we said, overt and covert, right? The covert action was down to two things. The CIA's attention focused on two elements. Either we fund the military, the Iraqi military to turn on Qasim, or we fund the Ba'ath Party mm-hmm. to turn on Qasim. And this would start the relationship between Saddam and the United States. You ever heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? While the U.S. officials believed... Saddam was in Egypt. Egypt at that time. While the U.S. Belie- officials believed that the Ba'ath were anti-communist and anti-imperialist, it was not necessarily opposed to the West. You know what I mean? The CIA first developed interest in the Ba'ath Party around 1961. According to James Critchfield, a former chief of the CIA's Near East Division, he would say, and I quote, In 1961 and 1962, the CIA increased its interest in the Ba'ath. Not actively to support it, but politically and intellectually, we found the Ba'ath more interesting. We found it particularly active in Iraq. Our analysis of the Ba'ath was that it was comparatively moderate at the time, and the, U- and the U.S. could easily adjust, adjust to and support its policy. We, so we watched the Ba'ath for so long. A slow preparation to take control. They planned to do it several times and we postponed it. So they were good. they wanted to coup earlier and they kept postponing it. Pushing it back and back and back. According to the CIA operation officers stationed in Iran during the 1960s. In the spring of 1962, the White House ordered the CIA to commence a plan to overthrow Qasim. So they went, they sent a tally to the CIA operations in Iran that they want to start. Let's do, them, let's do it. The agency entrusted a guy called Archie Roosevelt Jr. Nepotism, baby. They're all Nepo babies. Yeah. And just as Iran was considering to help the Kurds, on June 2nd, Iraq's uh, foreign minister, Hashem, uh, Hashem Jawad, called upon the U.S. ambassador and told him to leave. <laughs> Just leave. It was also important to note that while the relations were downgraded, uh, the Iraq move stopped short from se- severing all diplomatic relations. This was kind of like when Kennedy was like, okay, fine. They accepted the new Kuwaiti ambassador into Washington. And not long after this downgrade, British diplomats informed the embassy in Baghdad that a group of officers were planning to overthrow Qasim and install a new nationalist, anti-communist regime. It was such a mess, man. Like, the British ambassador, Sir Roger Allen, met with a guy named Roger Davies, an American deputy chief of mission in Baghdad, to discuss the situation. 
Like the CIA, the British were in bed with the Ba'ath Party and they were aware of the coup plans that were about to happen. Ba'ath had a lot of people talking to Exactly. With the major escalation of war in, between the Kurds and Iraqis, the US officials in Baghdad believed that the revolt had turned into a full-fledged storm cloud for Qasim. Popular frustration against Qasim and his pampered generals was growing and their inability to crush the Kurds led to questioning, so where's this all this money going? When yeah. you're subsidizing houses for the army, you're getting high-tech Soviet weapons. Like all these military people and they're not doing shit. No. According to the CIA official, it was at this point that the CIA made limited progress in convincing influential Iraqis to consider the possibility of overthrow. Uh, throughout October, the Kurdish war continued to go poorly for Qasim, leading to a lash out against the vulnerable Kurdish civilians. So Iraq just went for civilians. Uh, on the night of October 10th to 11th, the Kurds attacked oil installations, killing and capturing several people, and in late October carried out an additional attack on IPC facilities, the Iraq Petroleum Company facilities, smart. including refining and a pipeline. Very smart stuff. So they blew up pipelines that was leading towards Iraq, uh, Baghdad. The regime also retaliated by attacking Kurdish civilians, and in mid-November, U.S. officials in Baghdad received reports of women and children being used as human shields. Systemic bombing, pillaging of Kurdish villages, and the regime had, quote, the liberty removed food and clothing from Kurds in an attempt to starve the Kurds into submission. Yeah, like imagine leaving them in winter without clothes. But instead of breaking the Kurds, the atrocities served to unify them against the army more. Good on them. Uh, leading to the embassy to conclude almost all the Kurds in the city as well as the mountains, supported the revolt. In early 1963, the Ba'ath Party and the Kurds agreed to work together, and they would overthrow Qasim. Knowing that they needed to gain the support of the military, which they were extremely also anxious to end the war, the army was done, like, we need to end this. Yeah. The Kurds could effectively end the war, and when all the pieces were set in place and with the assistance of the CIA, things would start moving into motion. So just after midnight, Baghdad time, on February 8th, a coalition of the Ba'ath Party and the military launched a coup to overthrow Qasim. By noon the next day, the U.S. military attaché reported that the rebels had finally seized control of the city, predicting, and I quote, conditions could be chaotic for some time. As the Ba'ath unleashed its militia to even old scores with communists, the CIA had the prediction was more direct. It's going to be a bloodbath. On February 9th, Qasim eventually offered his surrender. In return, he just wanted a safe passage out of the country. His request was refused, and in the afternoon, he was executed on the orders of the new formed National Council of the Revolutionary like Command. Every time the Iraqis overthrow, they go for blood. Blood, man. Qasim was given a mock trial, broadcasted over the Baghdad radio, and then was killed. Many of his Shia supporters believed that he was merely gone into hiding and would appear like the Mahdi, which would lead to a rebellion against the new government, because don't forget it's an all-Sunni government. Mm -hmm. To counter that sentiment and to terrorize his supporters, Qasim's dead body would later be displayed on TV. Wow. Uh, in a five-minute propaganda video, it was called the, the End of the Criminals, which included close-up views of the bullet wounds in his head. Uh, amid disrespectful treatments of the corpse, uh, which, which ended with them spitting on his corpse as the final scene. So messy. So we're going to end it here because up next, the coup is in, the coup is in full swing. The Ba'ath party will go and this will cause the rise so of Saddam. this is part one. This is the end of part one. A body shown, bullets in. Spitting on, the la and spitting on its corpse. Next week or two weeks, whenever we record again, we're going to continue off now with the no, Ba'ath. Do you know how you end it? And then bodies and it's like next time on. <laughs> next time on a conversation before the world end, we gotta go into Iraq. I have feeling, sir. The war in Iran is becoming a stalemate. We need to do something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like all uh, next time. time. No, no. So we're gonna leave off here. The Ba'ath Party is gonna be in control. 
Next time on A Conversation Before the World Ends, we'll be looking at the Ba'ath Party, the rise of the Ba'ath Party, and how Saddam Hussein would eventually, through a coup, become the leader of the Ba'ath Party and effectively become the president of Iraq. How he would take Iraq to a war with Iran and how this would eventually lead to the first Gulf War. And how America went from supporting him to antagonizing him to supporting him to him becoming supervillain number one. The ultimate toxic relationship. Exactly. So guys, I hope you enjoyed the first part. Aim, do you have any things you want to say about the first part before moving to very complex in such a short period of time? Right. Like from 50s till 60s, it was just messy. It was all bloodbaths. And but yeah, so guys, hope you guys will join us next week uh, or two weeks while we will go over PR two, Saddam Hussein, Iran, and the first Gulf War. And eventually we could end by the third part, which we'll talk about Bush, Saddam, and the second Gulf War and wrap up this interesting and convoluted the Iraq trilogy Iraq trilogy starring Jeff Butler <laughs> and John Cena <laughs> anyway guys thank you so much for listening tonight and follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts where almost I think we're everywhere but Stitcher still leave us a review I'd like to hear in the comments if like on our Instagram what you guys thought of the episode what do you guys, if you guys have any opinions, if you want to correct us, if you said something wrong, you know, fact check us. It, this is all independently researched, so we could have missed something. And yeah, and let us know what you guys think. And see you guys next time. Take care. Take care, guys. <laughs> Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls.